Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So we are wrapping up a lengthy series. I believe this is episode 8 of our series about biblical genres of the Bible. So we are concluding this series today with what genre? We are concluding with, uh, now let me get this right, apocryphal? Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. See, that's... I, I get the two confused. Apocryphal is um, the stuff that's iffy about scripture. <laughs> that, that's a that's a nice way of saying it. Yeah, the, the fancy word is deuterocanonical. That's like, yeah. sort of like the the deep tracks that didn't make it on the greatest hits album. <laughs> no, well, someday we'll have to talk about the apocrypha, but not today. Today, yeah. apocalyptic, um, which um, brings us to the end of scripture and the and the main book that is almost completely, if not completely, uh, apocalyptic, the book of Revelation. Um, and my pet peeve, let me just be very clear, <laughs> there is one revelation to John, not multiple, so it's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations. And um, <laughs> in fairness to people who often mistake that, it's, they're used to reading letters that, that in the Bible that sound plural, like uh-huh. Philippians and Colossians Russians. and Corinthians, and they assume, oh, this must be the letter to the Revelations, you know, the yeah, church in sure. Revelation. No, not in fact the letter to the church not in Revelation. Excuse, Steve, not an excuse. <laughs> Just saying, we haven't made it easy for folks because we've named other books in the Bible that way, and then we end up with this one. Well, I mean, so um, in, in this book, like like we said, um, apocalyptic literature is about the end times, about what's going to happen, you know, at the end of everything. Kind of, I would say, because I I, I want to back up with just one step, because like apoc- apocalyptic, uh, the word apocalypse we automatically jump to this is about the end of the world and we'll get to why with good reason maybe but the word itself just means revelation or an uncovering so it's like uh, this is a revealing of things often the biblical writers are things that are yet to come Mm -hmm. but and one of the questions that we've been wrestling with for 2,000 years with the particular book that is at the end of our Bible that is in the singular, Revelation. (laughs) One of the real questions you have to wrestle with is how much of what John is writing about is primarily focused on what's going on in his world in the first century? Mm -hmm. How much is about someday in the distant future and how much is about the way those overlap? Um, And that's an open question. So in a sense it's about end times, but the word itself just means a revealing and there are going to be some parts of that revealing that are like, tomorrow's newspaper and some are like in some distant new creation right because while this entire book is apocalyptic there are parts of other books like daniel and and some other places and even in the gospels we find a little bit of it in one of the chapters of was it mark Mark? 12 yeah mark Mark. 13 yeah um you know that again kind of talks about that and and daniel is more so at least my reading of daniel is stuff that has already happened like it was to yet yet to come when it was being written but it, it now is past history. And that, that's an important distinction, is that there, there are things, for example, in Daniel that feel very, that use the style of apocalyptic literature, mm-hmm. but are events that are not future events for us. They describe things that happen in the centuries before the, the coming of Jesus. They, yeah. uh, so, um, also, the, the passage that is often called the Little Apocalypse in Mark's Gospel, and then where Matthew steals from it, in his version, <laughs> um, uh, the question that 
that uh, starts off, that kickstarts the whole conversation is they're walking, Jesus and the disciples are walking through Jerusalem looking at the temple mm-hmm. and they say something like, hey Jesus, what cool stones and what a big building. I mean, sort of like, what a, what a neat religious building we built, Jesus. And then this launches Jesus off into the days when the temple will be destroyed and they ask him about when the temple will be destroyed and that happens in the year AD 70. There's other stuff that Jesus talks about that is off in the future, mm-hmm. the distant future, but part of that whole chapter is about stuff that happened within a generation of Jesus' mm-hmm. uh, uh, earthly life and ministry. So while, yeah, there a lot of what we call the book of Revelation has this very future-oriented, especially because, spoiler alert, it's going to end with a whole new creation, um, it's also very much uh, about where are we right now in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And the that's part of what why Apocalypse as a style has to use such heavily coded and symbolic language because it can be dangerous to say stuff like down the empire but if you say the Roman eagle is going to be destroyed by the line of the tribe of Judah the Romans don't know what that means <laughs> um, yeah and I, and I and symbolism is huge yep. for this um, I think you had mentioned in a pretty recent episode Steve about the numbers and that everybody's yeah. name mm-hmm. has a number so in Revelation for example the number 666 is brought up for like the Antichrist, I mm-hmm. believe. And so there's lots of people who try to figure out, well, who does the 666 mean? Um, one theory is that that's Emperor Nero, who was the Roman Empire emperor at the time mm-hmm. and who was a little bit crazy. And there's a way to make the values of the... His- name come up to 666. There are other candidates, but yeah, you can make a case that it was Nero Mm -hmm. Caesar. Yep. And one of the difficult things about this style of writing is that not only are we talking symbolically sometimes about the present and sometimes about the future, and sometimes without stopping to tell us, oh, by the way, now I'm talking about the future, Mm -hmm. it blurs together, but often in really heavily veiled or coded or symbolic language, and some symbols are notoriously slippery. It is yeah. difficult to mm-hmm. pin down, and sometimes a writer assumes if you share the same world of meaning as your audience, you will all understand what the symbols mean, mm-hmm. and if you share a different world than them, uh, if you share a different world, if you have a, come from a different world or, or a different set of assumptions, what might have been obvious to the writer is not immediately obvious to the reader. So um, there are a couple of times... In Revelation, for example, where after dropping a really powerful symbol or image or something, the writer will go, let the reader understand, and I assume with a wink. Like, you know, you know I'm talking about here, 666, you know who I mean. And we, 2,000 years later, are left going, no, I don't know, who are you talking about? When the writer seems to think the audience, the original readers, knew exactly what this was about, uh, rather than having to guess or predict or look at the newspaper in the 20th century for who were people who could be the Antichrist. And I think that's what gives us such an issue with this book today. Right. Is so much of the symbolism is not, well, like eagles and lions mean something to us today. It is not the same meaning as what it would meant to Jews in the first century. Right. And And so we can understand what it meant for them. Only then can we interpret what it means for us today. And... A lot of times we're not willing to take the time to do that. Right, and I think that's an important piece, is that you can you can really get screwed up if you skip that middle step of what would have been going on in the original hero's mind or the writer's mm-hmm. mind that these symbols mean, and we just jump to, oh, I saw an eagle, that automatically means America, or I saw a lion, that automatically means X or Y or Z, mm-hmm. rather than... Simba. <laughs> the lion's name is Simba. He's, he sings uh, Hakuna Matata. Um... 
man, is it tempting for us to do that. And again, this is one of the difficult things about symbols is you put something out there and you intend something very clearly and other people don't mm-hmm. get it. Um, and maybe it's worth us recognizing the way symbols, even when they're not religious symbols, have a wide variety of the ways they get used or, or mm-hmm. understood or interpreted in different contexts. And you don't automatically just bring every possible meaning and go, it means all these five things. No, it probably means one or maybe two things, but not all five or six, you know? Like in the Bible, often snakes are a negative image, right? You go back to the serpent in, in uh, Genesis. Um, you've got the serpent who becomes a dragon in the book of Revelation. Uh, you've got Jesus sending his disciples with the authority to tread on snakes and things like that. But the first flag of the American colonies had was this big snake that said, don't tread on me. Man, different people read that symbol mm-hmm. differently. And if I import that symbol and go, oh, anytime I see a snake, that must be the 13 colonies. No, I'm, nope, that, yep. <laughs> this isn't about me. Um, it's, it's worth it to do that, exploring the, the additional work of what would this symbol or imagery have meant to its original hearers. So I think for most modern readers of the book of Revelation, the first thing that they think of is the Left Behind series that mm-hmm. Tim LaHaye right. and, and Jerry Jenkins, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Jerry Jenkins. I'm glad you remembered his name because I completely forgot. There were a series of novels and then some movies. And uh-huh. some movies, as well as there was a kid series, right? which I was I read. Wow. All of them. And... Another piece, maybe to be uh, honest about too, that the idea, the stories told there, are riffing on Hal Lindsey's *The Late Great Planet Earth* from the 1970s, yeah. and a movement in Christianity called dispensationalism that traces itself mm-hmm. back to the 1800s in England. Um, so, while there is a tradition for that kind of theology that sees Revelation primarily as about a future day Jesus plucks people out in a rapture event, that tradition only goes back maybe 150 or 200 years, not 2,000 years, and for most of Christian history, people did not read the book of Revelation, assuming it was going to talk about a secret rapture when the good little boys and girls were plucked up off the earth and watched the world go to hell in a handbasket. But I think that's a way to read Revelation that dishonors the author's intent that is merging both the things that are happening in his present time as well as this future day event. Because it's it's ignoring the fact all of the things that was happening when Presumably, a guy named John yeah. wrote mm-hmm. yeah. his revelation that was appeared to him in a dream. The other thing I think is, is significant is if if our if your approach to reading the book of Revelation is this book was useless for people for 2,000 years but now that we live close to the coming of Jesus again now it starts to mean something I think you've done violence mm-hmm. to what the, I mean clearly when John wrote it he didn't say this isn't going to mean anything for Christians for 2,000 years just wait until you get close to the rapture oh yeah there's a rapture and then it'll then it'll start to mean something and then there'll be a roadmap right 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 but that seems like that that's not really how any of the other books in the Bible or even how other apocalyptic literature mm-hmm. works more often, it's people who are writing encoded language, sometimes to talk about the future, uh, or using future kinds of language to talk about what's going on, or how do I cope with the present. And maybe the other thing that's worth maybe then lifting up about how this style of literature works is that it is almost always resistance literature. It's written under the thumb mm-hmm. of an empire. Pick your empire. When Daniel writes, there's a whole slew of empires to deal with, and uh, the book we call Revelation in the Bible is written under the thumb and the shadow of the Roman Empire. But when you're living in a time when the official authorities are rounding you and your person persecuted group up to kill you or feed you to lions or blame you for the burning of Rome, thank you Nero, or things like that, how do you hold on to hope? And, I mean, especially in a time where it sure looks like the powers of evil are winning the day. If every day it's the empire stomping on your friends and rounding up your neighbors and killing them, 
man, it's sure hard to hold on to the hope that God will ever set things right. So maybe underneath really what, what is so difficult for a lot of our ears with Revelation is we read too comfortably. We aren't persecuted, not meaningfully. Um, we read from a position of it's not only legal but encouraged to be our religion. Um, and we don't often assume that the powers of the day are all are automatically evil. We have come from a long tradition of the powers of the day are ordained by God. Um, and... Man, that's that's tough. If you're living always under the boot of the authorities and the empire, and they say that they win the day, how do you hold on to hope that this won't always be the case? Well, apocalyptic emerges as a way of writing resistance literature that also won't get you killed for treason. Because the kinds of things that John says about the end of empires and about God's reign over against the empires of the day is the kind of thing that would get people put to death. Yeah, but ultimately this genre is a genre of hope. Yeah. And that's kind of hard for us to read in this book just because at least I, when I read the book of Revelation, kind of get bogged down in the weird symbolism and the frustration of not understanding exactly what the Mm -hmm. author is intending for me to get from it. But ultimately it is a hopeful Mm -hmm. document that at the end we get, again, my favorite chapter of all, Revelation 21, where we hear the story, or we see, have this vision of God coming down and living amongst God's peoples again, and that there'll be no more pain, no more crying, no more death, and that that is hope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think that makes it weird to read uh, the, the particular brand of apocalypse we get in Revelation is that, and I don't know a better word for this, it is unapologetically a musical. I mean, the, the, in, in, the, yes. in, in the book of Revelation, it, it's structured weird. The first three chapters are like short little letters to other actual churches in Asia Minor, and they're actual historical churches. Sometimes you'll get commentators who are like, oh, no, these are meant to be symbolics of the different eras in church history. That, again, sort of misreads it and and makes it like, this didn't mean anything until 2,000 years later. No, these are actual churches that actually were dealing with stuff. And then... After that, you get basically the musical section where for 15 chapters, you get different scenes up in the heavenly throne room and down on earth and all across creation. And regularly, anytime you get a scene up in the heavenly throne room, people are breaking out into song. It's humans, it's angels, it's talking creatures, that kind of stuff. But the rules of watching a musical apply. And what I, what I mean by that is when you watch a musical... You, you are misunderstanding it if you stop and go, hey, how did they learn all those dance moves? Or, hey, how do they all know this song? That's how this goes. This is a musical. You don't question that part. It's what are they singing about? And the point of a song, they say in a musical, is when you get to the point where you can't express what needs to be conveyed in mere words, you have to have music and dance and all that kind of thing. And that the recurring theme throughout those middle sections before you get to the new creation is how does God eventually set things right in the world? And there's this central figure who emerges. This is my favorite part of the book of Revelation is this great switcheroo. Um, There's this great throne room scene. There's a big song and dance number and there's um, a scroll that has come out and the scroll is all sealed up and everybody's wondering in the heavenly throne room who will open the scroll for us? Who is worthy to open up the scroll? And they're like in a stage whisper. They're all saying to each other, who can open this? And then somebody goes, I know who will open it. The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come and save us and he will be the hero. And the spotlights turn to this empty spot on the stage and they're waiting for the lion to appear and no lion appears, only a lamb. In fact, as the book of Revelation has it, a little tiny lamb, our neon is the Greek word instead of the the, the usual word arne, which is like lamikins or fluffy. <laughs> um, so here's this little lamb 
who has been slaughtered and is yet alive again. It's a clear symbol. It's one of those ones that, like, Christians go, oh, that's Jesus. Um, so some of the symbols are tough, but <laughs> slain but risen lamb, we get that one. Um, so here's this figure of Christ, and that once the lamb appears... There's no more talk of lions at all, whole rest of the book. Nobody says, we're waiting around for the lion to get here, you dumb lamb. No, they get it. We were waiting for a lion. Oh, and a lamb was given. That's what we really needed. And the recurring image is that the lamb is victorious by dying and rising, not by having to kill other people. Like, the the whole book of Revelation undoes all the language of we have to kill people to get our way or for God to win, because at the center is this figure whose way of being victorious is getting killed by the powers of the day and whose resurrection breaks open their power uh, and destroys the power of death. And to me, like, once you see that is the central, like, that big switcheroo, we were waiting for a lion and a, and a lamb appeared and that was what we were hoping for all along, the whole rest of the story kind of, like, settles into place in a weird way where it's, all, it, it's not so much we need God to be violent or kill our enemies, so much as eventually the powers of death all destroy each other, and what's left is this God who reigns through suffering love. But there's that central piece, and then you get to a whole new creation with uh, Revelation 21 and 22. It's weird to read a book like this because it doesn't give us guideposts like, and now we'll be entering the musical section of this story, or and now we'll be entering a new creation. It just happens, and you kind of have to catch up as you're reading along, right? And there's not necessarily, outside of, like, the letters to the church, there's a lot of instruction in this book. It's just, it's John recalling his vision. Yeah. You know, and and so it's, and trying to figure out, okay, what does this vision mean? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, because, again, there's not instruction, but I always tell folks, you know, the the thing to take away from the book of Revelation is that the end, good defeats evil. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. You know, good wins out. Mm Mm-hmm. God wins that's all that you know that's the key yeah. to this book if you get nothing else out of this book god wins the other thing that maybe is, is worth suggesting and I, I i won't i won't go too far on a limb here because there's a lot of the imagery and structure that i is certainly up for debate but it at least is worth tossing out there it is tempting to read the book of revelation in a linear way that this is one sequential this happens mm-hmm. and then this and then this and then mm-hmm. this but i think more likely uh and i think there's a good case for the scholars who make this case is that what you've actually got is sort of a coiled in on itself repetition so you've got several scenes where there's um sets of seven there's seven bowls and seven trumpets and seven seals and there are those who over two thousand years have said oh well this is a sequential order first these seven terrible things happen and then these seven terrible things happen and then these ter- when it's seems more likely that what you've got is sort of a, a cycle in which all the all the, the old creation gets destroyed. And then I'm going to repeat that, and I'm going to tell with a different set of images, and now I'm going to tell with a different set of images, um, because honestly, you can only destroy the world so many times, right? Yeah. Um, and again, because this is meant to be symbolic, this is much less about an actual prediction about how many stars fall to Earth, um, and much more about all the things people in the world system think are permanent. The Empire thinks it is permanent, and the market thinks it is permanent, and the army thinks it is permanent. All these other institutions and structures think they will last forever, and here's God saying, no, at the end, all these crumble. But our hope was never in them in the first place. Our hope was in the God who created it all from scratch in the first place, who can make a new creation. If you have a vested interest in keeping the system or the structure as it is going, Revelation is going to be scary. <laughs> but if you were willing to say, all that could, I could let go of and God will hold me, then this is this is hopeful literature. Um, and I think that's, that's the thing, is it's maybe what makes it uncomfortable is for any of us to bear the idea that this, the systems and the institutions that we build our lives on for stability at some point could be shaken, you know? Um, like, 
there, there, the, the whole conversation Jesus has with his disciples back in Mark, or in, yeah, Mark 13 is all about the things that the disciples think will last forever. The temple, that will surely last forever, Jesus, right? Because God lives here, and Jesus is like, no, it's going to get knocked down too. And that happened in AD 70. That happened 2,000 years ago now for us. And that what makes it so scary for Jesus' disciples is the things that they thought, the institutions that they thought were good and God-ordained, those are going to get shaken. And Jesus seems to say, that if you're really going to have living, daring faith in God, you have to be willing that even the things you thought were God-ordained, those things could crumble, and it's okay. God will still be with us through those, but we may have to watch other things fall apart or, or, or crumble. And saying that out loud is always scary to the powers of the day who don't want to ever admit that the emperor is wearing no clothes. You know, you talked about, like, the seven seals and the seven stars and the seven bowls yeah. and all that, and that repetition, and that's something that... Um, throughout scripture, repetition is huge. Right. Yeah, because God knows that we're a little slow in the uptake, at least I am. Uh, and so we need things repeated to us. And, and so I think, um, I, I, I didn't think of that that way, but kind of like circling in on itself and being, you know, this is just another way of me telling you, this is going to end. Okay, you didn't get it the first time. Let me right, tell you again. Right. This is going to end. You need to learn to be able to live with this and know that even though this ends, that God is still going to be right. there. Right. In right, right. this. Yeah. It, it again. T- I don't. I don't want to beat this drum too loud about this musical thing because I know it's not literally a musical, although people do continually break into song. But like, if you watch a, a stage production on a musical and they get to the end of the big musical number and they come back to the chorus one more time, nobody stops and goes, "We've heard this before." No, you haven't seen it with dancers now, or you haven't heard it now when there's you know uh, twirling lights in the background. But like, the repetition is part of what drives it home and says, "This is the thing I'm trying to say." And we sometimes forget to ask those basic questions about what am I engage- what am I reading in this case, mm-hmm. or if I were watching a, a play, what kind of a story is this? And if you don't know what to expect, yeah, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> I remember years ago, my wife talked took me to a movie at this little art house movie near the seminary where we went, and the movie that was playing there, she told me, oh, it's a remake of Pride and Prejudice, the Jane Austen movie. Well, it was actually the Bollywood Hindu music, the Indian like Hindu style uh, uh, musical remake, and so not only was I surprised that this Jane Austen novel was set in India, but that the characters break into song and dance like five minutes in, I was not <laughs> expecting that at all. And then once, once like eight minutes in, I'm like, oh, that's the kind of movie we're watching. Now I I understand and I could process it differently but I was really upset for about three minutes when I was like Jane Austen did not write about dancing and singing that is not Jane Austen oh that's not the kind of story this is now I get it um, and I think sometimes we we forget to do that with the with the, the voices from the scripture and that to realize they are operating as we've been saying all through this series lo these many weeks in different genres and styles and sometimes it doesn't make a big difference if you're reading um, a history you can pretty quickly catch on oh this is a story about an historical event but if you bring that same set of assumptions and wade into the book of Revelation assuming it works the same way you're going to be really really confused or make a lot of bad conclusions right mm-hmm. So after all the world-shaking, world-ending violence and destruction where all the old stuff gets destroyed, at last we get to that final scene. What are things to remind folks uh, that we, we hear about in that new creation, and how does that bring us full circle to the way we started this series with the way God makes things in the beginning? We end with the new creation of God coming down from heaven and living here among God's people on earth. And that there is no longer this separation that happened way back when Adam and Eve, you know, ate the forbidden fruit and was kicked out of Eden. You know, that separation is now gone and that we are now 
in complete relationship again with God and not separated where you know we can now see God, talk to God, live with God mm-hmm. as I think that God intended when God first created the world. Mm-hmm. And while, again, all these different biblical books were written at different times and nobody was originally, when they're writing it down, thinking, oh, I hope they end this with the book of Revelation. Um, the fact that somebody wisely said this, the, the whole scripture sort of needs to have this bookend, that we start with this creation in the beginning and God makes us for relationship, and that at the end there's this sort of restoration of a new creation where God is finally restored, gives us a sense of like, oh, this is how the whole story hangs together, and that it's really all been about God creating and being in relationship with humanity. And while that structure is something we impose on it, that again, the 66 individual books and their authors didn't necessarily see, oh, this is one day going to be part of a very large plot, we can kind of see that because that's how our Bible's been put together and to see that that's where this is all we've been aiming. So even that makes not just the book of Revelation, but the whole of what we call the Old and New Testament aimed toward hope as well. Mm-hmm. And that if we miss that, if our understanding of the Christian faith doesn't have that thread of persistent hope, we're doing it wrong. <laughs> we're, we're misreading how the Bible is intended to be taken, huh? So any other final thoughts on things we need to let folks know about, about genres in the Bible in any of the various places we've gone in all these many weeks? Okay. Can I add then this, this bit of wisdom that a, a teacher at seminary once gave, and this was his advice anytime you open the Bible. Um, and he used to joke about this because uh, in our neck of the woods, um, they have these official rules uh, from the electrical company that before you go digging in your backyard, you're supposed to call the uh, utility company to make sure you're not digging up any like underground buried lines. And so this professor of mine used to say, uh, just like you're supposed to call before you dig uh, in your backyard, you should call before you dig when you read the scriptures. And his, his invitation to us, this good, well-versed, scholarly New Testament professor uh, said that before you open the scriptures, it is always worth calling before you dig, which is to pray beforehand, to say that it, this is not just a record of stuff from a long time ago, but the living God encounters us in this ongoing way. Um, and as much as it is interesting to learn who begat who once upon a time, um, these in these scriptures, God continues to speak. So the invitation to call before we dig is maybe a good one, too. Well, we've come to the end of the Bible, so uh, we'll join with a new series next time around when we gather. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. See you. Bye.